Now, what we got to realize here is that little section that I read is part of a larger, longer talk that Jesus is giving to the disciples. Let me set the context. This is, the, this is what theologians would refer to as the farewell discourse. This is Jesus' last time with his disciples. This is the, this is the last supper. This is the upper room. This is, this is after Judas betrayed him. Remember Judas' betrayal. And, and he began to talk to them. And in this talk, the talk is broken up into two sections. The first section we see in chapter 14. They're troubled. They've got a betrayer among them. He takes off. Then Peter brags about how he's going to be so strong till the end. And Jesus tells him that you're before, before the end of this day, you're going to deny me too. So the disciples, this team of disciples is getting rocked. This is bad news. And to top it all off, Jesus is telling us that he's going to die. He's going to suffer, be rejected, die. He's leaving us. He keeps talking about leaving. Their hearts are troubled. So what does Jesus tell them? Don't let your hearts be troubled. That was the first part of his talk that he's giving them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, what we've moved into in chapter 15, the last sermon we did in John was Jairus preaching this section. He started another section, the second part of this farewell discourse. And at the heart of the second part is some rich imagery. Maybe you remember what it is, but it's, it's metaphorical imagery. He started talking about the vine and the branches. Do you remember this? This is what he began to talk about. So it's like the second part of the farewell discourse. He begins to talk about the vine and the branches and the importance of bearing fruit. Now, just because I want you to look in your Bibles and I want you to see these things. I want you to see in God's Word that this is what God's Word says. Look at how many times Jesus says the phrase, bear fruit just in the beginning of chapter 15. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. We can say it together. Every branch in, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Okay? And he keeps going. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Then in verse 5, he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit. He keeps going on. He talks about abiding. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear fruit. Much fruit. And then he said it again in the section I just read. In verse 16, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and what church? Bear fruit. Could it be more clear what Jesus wants here? You should always pay attention to someone when they repeat themselves. You should especially pay attention to Jesus when he repeats himself. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. What's bearing fruit? Bearing fruit is the image, it's a metaphor for the good results coming from the life of a believer 
bringing benefit to the lives of others and advancing the work of God in the world. Let me say it again. Say it again, Kenny. (laughs) Bearing fruit is the image for the good results coming from the life of a believer bringing benefit to the lives of others and advancing the work of God in the world. This is what Jesus means in this context of bearing fruit. Keep that little definition with you because we're going to be in this series, Bear Fruit, for the next five weeks. We're going to be talking about what does Jesus mean when he talks about bearing fruit. Now, I want to ensure that we really understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about bearing fruit because I think this idea of bearing fruit is misunderstood by a lot of Christians and I think it's misunderstood by a lot of us at Brandywine Grace. We tend to personalize to privatize this image of bearing fruit. What do I mean by that? We tend to think of bearing fruit as just, it's just Jesus in me. And Jesus, at the heart of what he is sharing here, it's bigger than us as individuals. It's what he's called us together as the church to accomplish. We tend to think if I just, let me say it, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I go to church once a week, if I watch the live stream, if I listen to podcasts, if I read Christian books, then that's all that bearing fruit means. But Jesus means more than that. Those things are important. Those things are good. Christians should do all of those things, at least some of them. But by doing things, those things alone, just you and Jesus, you've under, misunderstood what he means right here. The vivid imagery of bearing fruit is in the context of a broader purpose that Jesus has for our lives as disciples. And the broader purpose is captured in a word that he also keeps using. The word is sent. Jesus keeps telling the disciples that they have been sent. He keeps telling the disciples that he has been sent. Who sent Jesus? The Father sent Jesus. He tells them this over and over again. And then he keeps telling them, so I am sending you. Don't take my word for it. I'll show you. The first indication in John of sentness is in chapter 13, verse 20. Look at this. I love when I hear Bible pages turn like that. You you can't hear it on the phone. They should make the app. You should turn it up and we can all hear the... Somebody can do that and make some money. Look at 13, verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Do you see this? 
a fuller sense in chapter 17, verse 18. I told you that chapter 17 is Jesus' prayer. Look at what he says in verse 18. As you, he says, Lord or Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is in the context. Bearing fruit is in the context of being sent. Look at chapter 20, verse 21. This is after the resurrection. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And it's right smack in the middle of this talk that he's giving on bearing fruit. If you look at the beginning of 15, right when he says, I'm the vine and my father is the vine branches or the vine dresser and you are the branches, right before that, he says an interesting word. Verse 31 at the end of chapter 14, he said, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go. Now, it's interesting because there's no indication that they actually leave the place at that moment. But, but he's saying to them, get up, let's go. What is that rising and going in reference to? We'll go up a little bit above. He says in verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for someone's coming. Who's coming? The scripture says, Jesus said, told him that the ruler of this world is coming. Good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. Good church. Satan's coming, the prince of the power of the spirit, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the world. He's coming. What should we do in response? Rise. Get up. Let's go. The enemy's advancing. Jesus never runs away from his problems. Jesus runs right at him. And he calls his disciples to do the same. Jesus has sent us bearing fruit is in the context of Jesus' broader purpose for every single disciple, and that is to be those that are sent, living on mission, living with intentional purpose. So at the core of what it means to bear fruit is a summons to mission. It's to go spread the fame of Jesus. You guys in on that? It's to go make disciples. It's to be fruitful and multiply, which comes out of God's mouth right at the beginning of the Bible, right after creation. We're called to go and make a difference. So this notion of bearing fruit as a private thing just between me and God is not what Jesus has in mind. Bearing fruit, I said, is the, is the image for the good results coming from the life of a believer, bringing benefit to the lives of others, and advancing the work of God in the world. Who's with me? This is not quite the same image as Paul uses when he speaks in a very famous passage on the fruit of the Spirit. 
It's not that they're not, they are closely related, but it's not the same thing that, that Paul is talking about when he talks about bearing the fruit. What are some of the fruits of the Spirit? We talk about love and, and joy and patience and self-control and faithfulness and gentleness. Are those things important in the Christian life? Absolutely. They have to be indicators of, of God having acted on us, of grace having transformed us. But the bearing fruit that Jesus is talking about here is in the context of, of spreading his frame, bringing benefit to the lives of others, and advancing the, the kingdom of Jesus in the world. We're on a mission. Spread the fame of Jesus. We're on a mission to beat back the darkness of this world. To see other people join us. We were in the world, right? He plucked us out of it. We were lost and broken. We had no purpose. He saved us out of that. And he wants us to stay and to keep going back into the world. To, to rescue more people that others would know him the way that we have come to know him. That's on, that's on a mission. That's what it means to bear fruit. I read a great quote about this. Leslie Newbegin. He says this, the gracious indwelling of God with his people is not, it's not an invitation to settle down into Chester County and forget the rest of the world. The gracious indwelling of God with his people is not an invitation to get comfortable. It is not an invitation to go live your best life now. It's not an invitation to settle down and forget the rest of the world. It's a summons to mission. Who's hearing me? We've got to see this, church. I'm, can, I'm, I'm very motivated by what I'm preaching this morning. I'm very, my heart is very warm towards Jesus and all that he's saying right here, but I'm very challenged by this. Are you? This is not an invitation to settle down. We get saved, we can't settle down. That temptation, I think, hits us uniquely in where we are, where we live, in the context of our lives. We've been so blessed We've been so, we, we just have so much compared to so many other people, compared to a lot of most people in the United States, compared to almost everybody in the world. We have so much, we've been blessed with so much, and the temptation would be to think that Jesus has saved us just so we can kind of enjoy our toys until we go be with him. That's not what Jesus has called us to. That would not bring a cheering smile from Jesus' face. Because what Jesus says to every single one of us is show yourself. Show yourself. Show yourself to what? Show yourself to be who I've saved you to be. Show yourself to be what my grace, I, my grace has saved you, has transformed you, and now I've invited you into this mission. Show yourself. How do we show ourselves? We bear fruit. We can't settle down and forget. That's not what God saved us for. We can't settle down and forget that there's people all around us in your neighborhoods across the street from you, that are living without hope in loneliness and despair and brokenness. We can't settle down and forget that. 
We can't settle down and forget that if your friends have everything in this world but not Jesus, they're going to forfeit their souls. We can't settle down and forget that there's a whole bunch of teenagers in the school districts right here that we live in that are despairing and depressed and even suicidal. We can't settle down and forget that there's places like Tinicum in Delaware County where my parents live where there's an opioid epidemic that is wreaking havoc on families. We can't settle down and forget this. We can't settle down and forget that there are places in this world where the, where the heart souls, Ben and Jay, are, are contemplating giving their lives, sacrificing everything that we have to go and see disciples made. There are places in this world like Indonesia or Bangladesh and the city of Dhaka where there's no gospel witness. There's no, like even if someone said, I'd like to hear about Jesus, there's no one to tell them. Church, we can't settle down and forget this. God didn't save us so we could settle down and forget. Our salvation was not an invitation to settle down and get comfortable. The grace of God at work in you is a summons to mission. Whoever heard of a Marine that wouldn't fight? Whoever heard of a fish that couldn't swim? Who ever heard of a Christian that wouldn't bear fruit? True grace is never idle. It must show itself. God didn't choose us only so that our sins could be forgiven and that we would have eternal life, but that our lives would bear fruit that our lives would be productive in fulfilling his purposes. Here's my expectation. It's greater than the coach's expectation was that sunny afternoon at the Laxpalooza. I expect greatness out of every single one of you. And the way we measure that greatness is the impact we make in other people's lives for Jesus. What's Jesus' expectation of you, Christian? What is his expectation of everyone that's been saved by his grace? What's Jesus' expectation for every disciple? You can sum it up in two words. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. If I am a Christian, the purpose of my life is to bring him glory by bearing fruit. I'm going to give you two secrets to a fruit-bearing life, okay? Two secrets. When I was younger, this will this will really date me, but um, I was thinking about a commercial that uh, I just remember. You know how you remember things from when you're younger? You just, like they're imp- imprinted. And uh, I remember this commercial where it was about Calgon. Do you remember? I don't even, like, I never even, I don't even know what it was. I think as I, I went back and watched the commercial, because I didn't even know what it was. But it was like, it's like a water softener. It was like, or like a, you know, something that made your laundry softer. I guess a fabric softener, I guess is what it was. I, I don't know. But it, it was this commercial for Calgon, and this lady shows up at the cleaners to pick up a, a pile of towels that she's had cleaned, which is really odd anyway, because I never went to the cleaners with my towels. You know, like, we washed them. But, but on 
on our own. We don't pay somebody else to do that. But, but she went in and she's touching her towels and she, she says to the man, she's like, how do you get these things so soft? And he was of Chinese descent and he looked at her and he said, ancient Chinese secret. <laughs> Ancient Chinese secret. But then what the camera does is it pans behind the curtain and his wife is in there going, my husband, you know, ancient Chinese secret. And she's jumping the cow gone into the, to the washing machine. And so, so then she comes out and says, uh, honey, we need more cow gone. And the lady says, ancient Chinese secret. Jesus gave the disciples and is now giving to you uh, not an ancient Chinese secret. It has nothing to do with Calgon. He wants to let you in on secrets for a fruit-bearing life. That's a great title for a book, isn't it? Just giving people tips, giving people secrets. But Jesus actually gives secrets for a fruit-bearing life. I'm going to show you two of them. J. Russ actually already, caught, already covered two. When he preached the last sermon, one of the secrets Jesus said is accept the pruning that I bring into your life. That's one of the secrets to a fruit-bearing life is accept the pruning that he brings into your lives. The second thing he did said is that we should abide. One of the secrets for bearing a fruit-bearing life is abiding in Christ. Now he's going to hit two more. The first one is love. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it this way. I'm going to give you two secrets this morning to a fruit-bearing life. And the first one is love or loving. And it's all over the text I just read. You saw it, right? It's everywhere. It's my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So he's talking about love. And then he ends in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus always has a lot to say about love. If he's emphasized anything about our relationships as followers with Christ, we, they, we could sum it up that they need to be characterized by love. Love is one of the secrets to building a fruit-bearing life. It's one of the fundamentals for fruit-bearing mission. You have to love. If you want to bear fruit, you have to be loving. It's one of the distinguishing marks of a disciple is love. If fruitfulness is the indelible, infallible mark of a true Christian, then we should ask, what's the secret to a life marked by fruitfulness? Jesus makes it so clear. Love. It's one of the distinguishing marks of a disciple. Is it one of the distinguishing marks of our lives? Is love one of the distinguishing marks of your life? I saw a, 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 a young woman at the gym recently. She's, uh, an, she's obviously an athlete and she's training. She's participating in some athletic sport. And there's one thing that's really unique about this young woman. I think about her often. She has a distinguishing mark on her face. She has a big red mark on her face. Distinguishing. You can't look at her and not see it. 
Man, that sucks to be a teenager with that. It's clear. It's obvious. It's indelible, which means she can't erase it as much as she would love to. It distinguishes her. In the providence and sovereignty of God, when he created her, he put a distinguishing mark on her. I don't understand God's ways. That's a hard one. I pray that God gives her someone that will love her for who she really is. And God can do that. I know he can and he will. Just as clearly as God has put a distinguishing mark on that girl, he wants to put a distinguishing mark on you. Indelible. Can't be erased. What's that mark? Love. When people look at you, they ought to see love as immediately as when they look at her and they see uh, a large birthmark. So let's ask, is love the distinguishing mark of your life? How has grace so impacted your life that you're becoming more loving? Can you honestly say that grace is at work making you more loving? True grace is never idle. God's at work in you, Christian, to make you more loving. Are you cooperating? Or are you resisting? And what I've labeled a secret, Jesus labels a command. I said, I said I'm going to give you some secrets for, for a, living a fruit-bearing life. Jesus didn't label it a secret. He labeled it a command. So the secret is a command. As Christians, we have to do this. Love is not an option. So the more angry, kind of abrasive, bristly people in the church, more abrasive personalities can't say, I'll leave that to the warm, gushy people around here. Don Agar can do that for all of us. I'll leave love to the softies. I'll leave love to the romantics. I'm content with my way, just a little self-centered and bristly. No. No Christian can say that. And the love he calls for, he describes. We're to love when we feel like it. Checking to see if anybody's listening. <laughs> We're to love as he loved us. I liked it when Jesus said in verse 9, as the Father loved me, that's the way I love you. I love that. I love hearing about how Jesus loves me just like the Father loves him. That's how much he loves me. But I don't like this statement as much in verse 12 that I'm called to love others the way he loves me. How does he love? He lays down his life. It's right there, right? 
Greater love has no man in this, and he laid down his life for his friends. What's Jesus on his way to do? Lay down his life for his friends. This is what love is. It's sacrifice. It's a willingness to lay down our lives. Jesus' love is a love that says so differently than the culture. The culture's definition of of life is your life for mine. You exist for me. Jesus says it so differently. He says, my life for yours. That's not how we want it. It's not what comes naturally. What I want it to be is your life for me. But our lives must be church marked by this willingness to lay down our lives. Most of us will never be put into a position where we'll ever have to die for someone. But we all have an opportunity to live for someone today. They're sitting next to you. At home, here. So love must be a willingness to lay down our interests for others. You want to bear fruit for for God, Brandywine Grace? You want to bear fruit for Jesus? Then we need more friends in this place who say with their lives, my life for yours. We need more fathers who will actually live my life for yours. We need more mothers that will say with their lives, my life for yours. We need more sons, more daughters that will say, my life for yours. We need more grandparents in this place who will live my life for yours. We need more teenagers that will say, it's not about me. It's my life for yours. We need more business owners, more pastors, more church planners, more artists, more musicians, more missional community leaders, more Bible study directors, more people helping with discipleship who live with this idea that I'm living my life for yours. Wouldn't we change this place? Wouldn't we turn, Brand- Wouldn't we turn Downingtown and the world upside down if we truly were God- what God has called us to be? Those who lay down our lives for others, which means we live with that mantra over our lives. My life for yours. What would it look like to bring that idea into every relationship that's important to you? What would it look like to review your sphere of influence, your sphere of relationships, and ask this question, how could I live towards that person, my life for theirs. Listen, I can try to love you, but to love you like Jesus loved you and loved me is beyond my natural ability. He loved us when we were unlovely. And we're called to model that kind of love. No wonder Jesus is constantly talking about your need for the Holy Spirit. He knows what he's dealing with. You can't do this. We should be crying out, church, to God for grace to love the way he loved us. Because you cannot do that in your own strength. You can't do that. You can't live my life for yours. You need, Holy Spirit, would you empower me to live this way because it's so unnatural to me. Oh, I have so much to say to us, church. 
Now, in order to motivate our efforts to love, I just want to show you two little things to look a little deeper at Jesus' love for us because it's Jesus' love for us that motivates us to love others. And one thing he says here is that he chose us. We could preach a whole sermon on this. He chose us. Echologomai. That's the Greek. Echo. Echologomai. Something like that. It's where we get the word elect. God chose us. The word means to choose or to pick out from a group. Do you want some motivation to go live for Jesus? Remember this morning that out of millions lost, God chose you. I like the way cross movements said it. More poetically. You know what's sick? I was a pick that you drafted. A backflip with a twist couldn't be more backwards. Chose us. Think on that. He also, we can't pass over this. He made us friends. You are my friends, he said. And then he says it again. But I have called you friends. This is a stirring level of comfortable personal interaction with the eternal, omnipotent creator of the universe. In the Old Testament, only two people get labeled friends of God. Take a guess. Moses is one. Take another guess. Abraham. Two. People in the entire Old Testament get mentioned or labeled as friends of God. Now, that kind of personal relationship, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, that kind of personal relationship goes to every single one of you who is in Christ. You're a friend. Jesus walks into the party and introduces you. This is my friend, Dave. Boy, that makes me uncomfortable when you do that, Jesus, because do you know all the things I've done? Yes, I do. And I've covered it with my blood. And you are my friend. Mm. J.C. Ryle. Every sermon needs a little J.C. Ryle. There is nobody so rich. There is nobody so strong. There is nobody so independent. There is nobody so well off. There is nobody so thoroughly provided for as the person for whom Jesus says, this is my friend. God's love for us is so extravagant, church. So big-hearted. So generous. And because of his love, he invites us to love others with that kind of love. To, to, to love others with a love that springs from the love that he has shown us. Let's make love. Let's make big-hearted love, big-hearted generosity a core value at Brandywine Grace. Because that's how our lives should look if God has chosen us, saved us, and called us to be friends. And he did that when we weren't worthy of it. We didn't earn it. We didn't marry it. He did it because he chose us, because he loved us. He poured out an extravagant, generous love on us. He's eager to extravagantly give himself to meet the needs of lost sinners, and that's what we should be doing. And we could keep going, but I'm going to stop there on this, the first secret, and I'm going to go to the second secret, and I'm going to try to figure out what we're going to do here. 
I want to give you this second secret because you need it. And then we're going to pray. Second secret is prayer. It's right here in verse 17. He's, or, yeah, verse 16, Ather. He says that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name. That asking in my name is another way of saying pray. To pray. So, so a se- one of the secrets, the second secret for living a fruit-bearing life is prayer. It's coming right out of the mouth of Jesus. It's a further fundamental for fruit-bearing mission. We've got to love. We've got to pray. And prayer includes asking. That's why he says, so that whatever you ask. But the prayer includes more than asking. This blows my mind. Look at verse 7. You, didn't, you don't notice about prayer. I, I, this, this, is, this blows my mind. That prayer includes asking. But look at verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. There's a difference between an ask and a wish. The prayer spectrum that God, that Jesus invites us to pray in includes everything from asking to wishing. What's the difference? Well, I looked it up the definitions. They're different. Asking is to say something in order to obtain an answer or some information. Asking is making a request that someone do something or someone give something. How often are we asking God to do something or to give something? Wishing is different. Wishing is to actually feel or express a strong desire or a hope that for something that is not easily attainable. Boy, I wish that. It would go against the odds, but boy, I wish that. Wishing is to want something that, can't, that, that cannot or probably won't happen. That's what it means to wish. How often are we wishing to God? How often are we making requests to God so big that they won't be easily attainable? How often are we wishing or talking to God about things that are so big that you think they probably won't happen? That's what God wants to talk to you about. Now, asking seems more reasonable. Like, you, like I was thinking about a, boss, a person with their boss, they need a raise. Like, you could wish for this, but you would never have the audacity to go in and tell them, ask for what you wish for. Like, okay, I'll dial that back down. I wish they would give me this, but I'll ask for this. Asking seems more reasonable. But when I look at my own prayer life and the prayer life of my friends in Brandywine Grace, I'm convinced there's a lot more asking of God that could be done than is being done. I'm just talking about asking here. James explains that the reasons most Christians don't have is because they don't ask. How about dreams and wishes? When's the last time you wished to God for something that won't be easily attainable? When was the last time you wished for something that in the natural probably can't happen, won't happen? When did you wish for things that that would be in this category? With man, that would be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
That's wishing. That's why I say we don't understand prayer. Jesus is saying that we can make audacious requests of God. Will you make an audacious request of God? Will you make an even seemingly outrageous request of God? Now you might say, Kenny, you're turning God into a genie. I mean, can we really get God to do whatever we want? There's an important condition. There's a secret to getting God to do whatever you wish. Whatever you ask. See, some of you got it all lined up. I'm going to start wishing for some things. Man, I'd love to have that Porsche, Porsche 911. Man, I'd love to have a bigger yard. Jesus gives us a condition. He says there's a secret to getting God to do whatever you ask, whatever you wish. What is it? You have to abide in Christ. Answered prayer is the result of two things, abiding in Christ and abiding in his word. So he's assuming that you're going to be so close to me in bearing fruit. You're going to abide in me that the things I care about are actually going to be the things you care about. That, that the things that make my heart excited are the things that make your heart excited. And those kind of people are not looking around for how they can live for themselves. Those kind of people are living with Jesus' heart for others. And so they actually ask for things that God's answering and giving. You've got to abide in Christ. We've got to abide in his word. Christ promises that the secret to bearing more fruit is we got to pray. So are we sensitive to the work of the Spirit as it, the Spirit is moving in us to pray? Let me ask just Chris. Chris, we're just going to do, I'm just going to have you play here. So if Chris could come up and begin to play, we're going to uh, pray in a minute. There's another secret. It has to be done in, another secret to, to prayer. It has to be done in secret. Secret prayer is the secret of prayer. Secret prayer is the secret of prayer. Spurgeon says, secret prayer is the secret of prayer, the soul of prayer, the seal of prayer, the strength of prayer. If you don't pray alone, you don't pray at all. Your heart must speak with God in secret or you have not prayed. So this is his point. This is his point. And I'll, I'll summarize it this way. What if we could accumulate all of our personal private prayers to God on the stage in a jar? All of them. I'm willing to bet we could fit them on the stage. Maybe, I don't know how big the jar would be. Like all of our prayers from the last week that we privately prayed to God. I wonder if whatever we could contain, God would say, I wish, I desire that they would talk to me even more about all the things that I want to do when they ask me. All the audacious claims that I would love for them to wish to make. Wouldn't it be wonderful if whatever that container is, if it looks like it would be like right here, wouldn't it be wonderful in five weeks if that container was like, like this big? And wouldn't it be wonderful if, if in a month's time the container of all of our private prayers was like, like here, like it could hardly fit on the stage? 
And then wouldn't it be wonderful if we got to a place where we were so in tune, so abiding in Christ, so living in our union with Christ, so moved by his spirit to pray that it would take this whole room to contain all of our requests, all of our asks, all of our wishes. Church, let's pray like it all depends on God because it does that doesn't mean he's not going to use us but let's pray let's make more requests you know union with Christ being united with Christ is the essence of what we're talking about here if we're united with Christ and he invites us to love like he loves he invites us to pray to talk to him The essence, I heard someone say, of Christian theology is grace. And the essence of Christian ethics, work, is the outworking of that grace. Essence of Christian ethics is bearing fruit in light of the fact that you're united with Christ. Sometimes I get Amy to say things to me in Spanish. Because I don't understand Spanish. Sometimes I have to hear it in another language. You should do that sometimes. You hear the words of the Bible. You hear the words of Christ in another language. Sometimes it really helps you. So I said to Amy, I told her what I wanted her to say, and then I said, say it to me. She was, uh, I wanted to think about this idea of being in Christ and bearing fruit. And this is what Amy said in my best Spanish. Separado de Cristo no hay fruta. Unido con Cristo, mucho fruto. Fruta. Separado de Cristo, no hay fruta. Unido con Cristo, mucho fruta. Separate from Christ, no fruit. United to Christ, much fruit. Think of ourselves like a team playing in the Super Bowl. Only our goal isn't just winning the game. It's to participate in God's purposes in the world. So, hey, team, huddle it up. Bring it in. The call, the play call is to bear fruit. We got to bear fruit, team. That's the call. Bear fruit. What's the secret? 